Okay, we are starting today in 1 Samuel. And today we're going to cover just some introductory material. It's a, it's a long book, and uh, so we need, we need uh, a fair amount of background into the book. So the first thing is, and, and this is sort of like what they, they do in uh, seminaries. You know, you talk about purpose, the author, the date. We're not going to go into to real depth with that, but a little bit. Okay, so the, the author of this book, uh, Samuel probably wrote parts of the book, but he probably didn't write the parts that take place after he died. Okay, so that, that, that's pretty well understood. But if you look, for example, in, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10, there is, a, there is a small mention here about Samuel uh, uh, teaching things like this. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. It says, Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and he wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each to his house. So Samuel, Samuel was writing things and recording things. Uh, but Samuel dies... In, in, in the middle of 1 Samuel. So he couldn't have written the second half of 1 Samuel, nor could he have written 2 Samuel. Uh, there, there are other proposals about who wrote certain things. And, and uh, one, one proposal is that Nathan, one of the prophets that's mentioned in, in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, and Gad, another one of the prophets, uh, comp- compiled a lot of this and wrote a lot of the portions that, that took place after Samuel's death. And so if you look, for example, in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, because there, there are just little tidbits of truth that, that give people these sort of indications. So, if, so right after First and Second Samuel, you have 1 Chronicles. Uh, I'm sorry, you have King, First and Second Kings and then First and Second Chronicles. And then in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29, it says, Now the acts of the king of David, now the acts of King David, from the first to the last, are, they, are, are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So, you see, there is this recording in a totally different book, mentioning the writings of Samuel having recorded certain things about David. And then also coupling with that uh, Nathan and Gad, those two prophets. So you see how, how people who study these things for a living can you know, m- make educated guesses at who the authors might be of this particular book. And then if you look in... in uh, um, Uh, well, let's see, let's see, let's see. Look in Second Second Samuel, book of Second Samuel, chapter one. Second Samuel, chapter one, verse eighteen. It says, "And he told them." We'll start at, sec, at verse seventeen. Second Samuel one seventeen. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the songs of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshar. So there were certain books that were written that were referred to with different names from which 
these books that we have may have been compiled. Okay, so the date of, of this is about 1000 B.C., so roughly 1000 B.C., 1100 B.C. to about 1000 B.C., and time periods like this, and the time periods are fairly well known because very often they'll give little hints in the Bible. This was during the reign of so-and-so. This occurred during such-and-such such a time. Now, in the New Testament, you have the same sort of thing. They will reference things to the time of great famines. And so that you can look back in, in, in archaeology and find certain events that took place and couple it there. Um, so the, the, the first Samuel deals with the birth of Samuel through the death of King Saul. And, and, and second Samuel deals with the reign of David. Uh, during this time, the only threat, the only real threat to the nation were the Philistines. There weren't a whole lot of other national threats. But it's interesting, a contemporary of Samuel was Samson. Samson was a contemporary of Samuel. And, in fact, Samson kept the Philistines at bay quite a lot. And during this time, Samuel had a teaching ministry that went all through through the nation of Israel, probably because Samson was keeping the Philistines at bay. So if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, it says, 1 Samuel 7:15 says, Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So Samuel was a prophet, and he was a judge as well. He was the last judge. So we have before the book of 1 Samuel, you have the book of Judges. The last judge was Samuel before the authority turned over to a kingship. And it says, and he used to go annually, in verse 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 7, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So you see that he would go and he would have this prophetic ministry, this teaching ministry that spanned around the nation of Israel. Uh, when Samson dies, probably is when the Philistines started to gain more power and, and Saul was confronted with the Philistines. Uh, and, and so you see that, that uh, um, this was a time where the kingdom, the kingdom, of God, the kingdom of Israel had been corrupted. The spiritual condition was really poor at this time. Uh, there was great corruption in the priesthood, the sons of Eli, which we're going to read about. But there was a faithful remnant. Um, for example, the faithful remnant would be people like Ruth during this time, people, time period. People like Samson's parents were faithful people. So you see hints of this. Samuel, it turns out, was the, the, uh, the last of the judges. And there's even references to this in the book of Acts. So if you turn over to the book of Acts in the New Testament... So the New Testament actually gives us insight very often to things that are going on in the Old Testament. So in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 20, Acts 13, verse 20, says, After these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish. So you see references to Samuel right there in the New Testament. And then if, if, you, uh, if you go just a few pages over in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, verse 24. 
Acts 3.24, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onwards also announced these days. So actually, Samuel was, was started, he founded the order of the prophets. And we'll read about that in 1 Samuel. So there are references to him being made, uh, references to him as being a, a, a prophet. Now, it turns out that they didn't, particularly just want him as a judge, the nation of Israel ends up wanting a king. And so they cry out for a king and they kept asking God for a king, asking Samuel for a king, and they got, they got King Saul, which was not God's choice, but it was God's choice for eventually for there to be a kingship. And if you turn way back in Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 49, when it's talking about the prophecies concerning the nation of Israel, so way before this, God had talked about kingships in Israel. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between its feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this scepter speaks of kingship. The kingship, it says, is going to come from this descendants of Judah. Because in this, uh, there is this proclamation where Jacob is blessing each of his children and he gives each of his twelve sons a particular blessing and Ephraim and Manasseh for Joseph's sake got these particular blessings but each one of these he's given these blessings to his twelve sons and he says of Judah kingship is going to rise from you so, so David was of the tribe of Judah Jesus was of the tribe of Judah Saul was not so we know that that is something that the people asked for, but it was not a particularly of God's choice. And then turn over to Deuteronomy 17. Again, we have an indication that God had planned all along for there to be kings. It's just the people had wanted it before its proper time. And that's a good lesson for us. God may have certain things for us, but not at particular times. So turn to Deuteronomy 17. And in Deuteronomy 17, in the law of Moses, God is now, er, Moses is teaching the people what God is saying about kings that are going to arise in the nation of Israel. So in Deuteronomy 17, reading from verse 14, and we'll spend a little bit of time in this. When you enter the land the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you may set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor, give, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So these are rules that God is lining up for eventually when there's going to be a kingship. So it always was God's intent to be a kingship there. But he says that, that here are certain requirements. It says in verse 15, you shall surely get a king whom the Lord your God chooses. That was one of the requirements. He says, I need to be part of this selection process. And it's good to allow God to be part of the selection processes in our lives. 
It's good to allow God to be part of the selection process in your career. It's good. And how do you do that? You pray and you ask God. Say, Lord, lead me in these decisions. Lord, guide me. Lord, close the doors that are not of you. Or if there's multiple doors open, say, Lord, close certain doors or make it clear to me, Lord. The Bible is very specific and it specifically says if we ask, if we ask of him, he helps us. He will give to us. If we seek, we will find. The Bible says over and over again. But for some reason, we get in our heads sometimes like, like, oh, these decisions have come. Now I have to decide. And there's never a consideration of God in this. So I'm telling you now, when you're not in the midst of an important decision, to remember that when you are, ask God for guidance. Ask God for guidance in choosing up a spouse. Ask God for guidance in, in, in where you're going to live where you, 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 with respect to jobs. You ask God for guidance. Part of this, you hear God speak through the scriptures. You hear him speak through other people. You hear him speak through trusted counselors. You can get information like this, particularly with, with spouses. It's good to hear from your parents. God has given parents, even unbelieving parents, this amazing wisdom when it comes to their children's spouses. And if you're convinced that this spouse is for you and your parents just don't see it, you continue to pray. And if it's of God, He will change their hearts. Because He gives them special wisdom. Because a lot of times our parents know more about us than we know ourselves. So, He says, you you know, let God be in this choice. Then He says, He's got to be from among your countrymen. You can't choose a foreigner. So that's a certain requirement He had upon them in choosing a king. It says that this king is not to multiply horses for himself. So in other words, the key is not building a huge army. He's not to multiply all these things for himself and building things for himself. In other words, I don't want this king taking the resources of the land and applying this, all this to himself. He's not to do this. <clears throat> He's not to cause you to return to Egypt when things get tough, to run off to Egypt. He's not to do that because I delivered you from Egypt. He says he's not to multiply wives for himself, or his heart will turn away. Well, look at Solomon. Solomon had, uh, uh, what was it, 700 wives and 300 concubines, is that right? And his heart turned away. I mean, I'm surprised that, you know, he was alive with 700 wives and 300 concubines. But his heart turned away. And it says repeatedly there that his his wives drew him astray. David had multiple wives. If you count them all up, he had something, I I don't know, like seven or eight or twelve wives. And, and, uh, um, you know, it it says, there's an interesting passage that when David had sinned with Bathsheba, God says to him, you know, if you had wanted more wives, you could have asked me and I would have given you. And in the Hebrew, and I had this discussion because I was, a year and a half ago, I was in Israel and had this discussion with some Orthodox Jews who were reading from the Hebrew Scriptures and they said, and I will give you so much and so much. And so from that, the Orthodox Jews said it was okay for a king to have three wives because David had, I will give you one, so much two, and so much three. And so from that, they make this extrapolation to three. Well, David had certainly more than that. 
But, or you could say a multiple is more than one. But there were strict requirements on this that weren't followed. But there's other strict requirements that come later on in that same chapter. In verse 17, Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. You're not to use the resources of your kingship to make yourself rich. You know, that's a tremendous counsel to leaders today. You know, don't use this position of office to make yourself rich because you become corrupted. I mean, you see, this book has so much wisdom. There's really a lot there. Now let's read in verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. This is a wonderful requirement that was upon kings. We don't have any indication that the kings did this. We know, for example, that Josiah, when he, he came into his kingship, had this enormous respect for the Word of God. And when he realized that it wasn't being followed, he just cried out to God and tore his clothes, and God really honored him for that. But look what it says. He says, when he comes and he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he's going to have to write himself a copy of of this law on a scroll in the presence of all the, Levitical priests, uh, all the Levitical priests. So in other words, you take the entire law of Moses. So this is the, the, the Genesis through Deuteronomy. There's a lot here. I mean, you know how many scrolls it would take to write all of this out by hand? It says the king is to sit down and write in the presence of the Le- Levitical priests to make sure he doesn't make a mistake. That you write this thing out He says, I want him to write out himself a copy. He is to have his own copy of this book. Remember, books were really scarce because they had to be transcribed by hand. And so, ultimately, in the New Testament, each synagogue would have the scroll of the law. But he said he wanted the king to have his own copy, write the thing out by hand, make sure he does it right by having the Levitical priests watch him. It says, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. I mean, things probably would have been different with the kings had they done this. Don't you think so? But that applies to kings and not us. If we read this book, it makes a difference in the way our lives go. It is not just something that affects kings, because there are verses just like this for us too. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. There are multiple, multiple verses that talk about meditating on this book, night and day, all the days of our life. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? Why should he? He's a busy guy. He's got a whole kingdom to take care of. 
Well, the Bible doesn't say, well, I know he's really busy, so once a year on Christmas and Easter, if he reads it, he'll be all right. No, it says, in spite of his being a king, in spite of his being a busy student or a busy professor, I want him reading this book every day of his life. It applies to you and to me as it did to the kings. And the kings would have been very, very different had they done this. And you and I, our lives would be very, very different if we do this. And the difference is for much, much good. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So number one, when he reads this every day of his life, this is what's going to happen. He's going to learn to fear God. He's going to learn to fear God. The scriptures say the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. talks about this law and the fear of God endures forever. It says, it will cause him to fear the Lord his God. What good does fearing God do? It keeps me from a lot of trouble. I fear God because he says to me, there are certain things that I can do and not do. And because of the fear of God, it, make, it causes me to check myself. So if there is something that I want, that I'm not allowed to have, and nobody's looking, guess what? God sees. There is the fear of God there. And without meditating and reading this book every day, you know what happens? The fear of God goes. And we take that thing. Ask half the men in the church... about the adultery that they may have fallen into. Ask them. Did they see something that wasn't theirs that they took anyway? Ask them. You read this book, you will maintain the fear of God, you will protect your marriage. You will protect yourself from harm. You will protect yourself from doing things wrong at work. You will protect yourself from cheating. Where you have a take-home exam and you're sitting in your room all alone and you're not allowed to use your books and the textbook is sitting right there. Without meditating and reading this book, every day the fear of God goes. And God sees. And there is discipline. We lose out. But God knows, without reading this book every day, the fear of God goes. And when you start in business, and you are walking uprightly and in the fear of God, people will notice that this is a person who's honest. Just by the appearance on your face, when you speak, when you talk, people will sense the honesty, and they'll be attracted to it. And if you lie, people will sense the dishonesty and be repulsed from it. This book, it says, read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord as God by carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes. So it is not enough just to say, I have read it. It says there must be obedience to it. I was speaking to a, um, 
Every time before one of my PhDs leaves, I bring them to my office for their going away talk. The last talk that I'm going to have with them throughout their PhD careers. And I go through with them my impression of their careers. If they didn't work, I tell them. I say, you know, you didn't work very hard. You could have been done with this degree much faster. You could have gotten much more done. You were lazy in certain aspects of your career. You didn't do this, this, and this. There were these things that were left undone. These, this sort of pattern will affect your life. I tell them this. That is a good thing. It is much easier for me to just sit back and say, God bless you, goodbye. Much easier to do that. But no, I'm going to let them know what I think. And when they've done well, I tell them so. I say, you were faithful, you were devoted, you did everything you had to do and more. But I also leave them with this. I leave them something about the truth of the Word of God and I always bow in prayer and pray for them. And I was just speaking to one who was a believer. And I said to her, you take this book and you obey what the Scriptures say and your life will be blessed. If you don't, it won't. It is that simple. If you take this book and you obey what's written here, your life will be blessed. If you don't, it won't. How do I know that's exactly what the Scriptures say? That if we obey this book, things will go well. If we don't, they won't. It is nothing to mess around with. And the Scriptures, we're going to see, this is the beautiful thing about First and Second Samuel, we're going to see the blessings that come because of obedience and the hardships in life that come because of disobedience. This is a tremendous book. I read the Bible from beginning to end. When I'm done, I start again. But when I hit 1 Samuel, I'm like, yes, this is so much fun to read through 1 Samuel. You see the effects of obedience versus disobedience. It is just utterly tremendous. You obey this book, you will be blessed. It says, you, you read this book so that you could fear God by and carefully observe all the words of the law and these statutes. Observe it. It does us no good to know it and not observe it. Then he says in verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Whoa, this is great. By reading this book, I will not think more of myself than I ought, because God will catch me. And you think that, oh, well, you know, you, you, haven't written, you haven't risen to a level that makes you think more of yourself than you ought. Well, you know what happens? When people are sophomores, they start getting an attitude when the new freshmen come. It doesn't take long to start thinking you are something. Do you know what I mean? By meditating on this book, it says it will keep him from lifting his heart above that of his countrymen. It will cause a king not to think more of himself than he ought. You know, a king is more than a president. You know, a king says, kill him, and he dies. The king has this extreme power. He says he needs this book to make sure he doesn't lift his heart 
to being any bit above his countrymen. This is the beautiful things about the Scripture and the Word of God. We are one. This is the beauty of it all. When we pray, we all kneel together. It is not one is greater than the other. We are all one in Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, to whom we owe the bowing of our knee, knelt and washed His disciples' feet. And He said, what you have seen Me do, you call Me Teacher and Lord. And so I am. What you have seen Me do, you go and do likewise. Look at what He teaches. This is, to me, one of the indications that Jesus was God. No man, no 30-year-old man or 32-year-old man could do the works that he did and not become puffed up if he wasn't God himself. Can you imagine you speak the word and the dead are raised? You just pray for somebody who's sick and they get healed and you start thinking of yourself as really something. And if not verbalizing it, at least in here. Or you have certain successes in your life of conquering sin and then all of a sudden this judgmental attitude toward another person who's struggling with something. But that Jesus could do all that He did and never exalt Himself above the people, but wash their feet and minister to them, says to me He could only have been God. I was talking with a man from Korea And he told me he reads the Bible every day. I said, you're a Christian? He says, no. I said, why do you read the Bible every day? This is interesting. He says, this man, Jesus, he said he had to be God. No man could be like this. Whoa. He likes to read about Jesus because he feels that no man could have the ideals and the attitude that Jesus had without having been God. This Bible says that by doing this, so that he will not lift his heart above his countrymen. You know how people get when they get little bits of power? Just a little bit. They get so ugly. Happens to me all the time. But the Bible comes back and checks me in this. This is what happens. It is a good thing to be in this Word. It keeps us from getting so ugly. Because pride we never see, but everybody else does. It's like having a big word, pride, written on our forehead. Everybody else sees it, but we have no idea it's there. He says, this book keeps you in check. That he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left. He says, again, don't deviate from these things. Oh, well, you know, it won't hurt if I just marry this guy. He's such a nice guy. He is a nice man. He's a good man. Yeah, he doesn't know the Lord, but he's close. And the best way to get him to know the Lord is to marry him and he'll come to church with me. No, that's the worst way because he sees that you're a hypocrite and a liar. Because he sees that you say you want to obey this book and you don't. Because you're marrying him. So he sees you to be the liar that you are. And it doesn't draw him closer to Christianity, it turns him away. Because he says, oh, Christians are liars. You see what I mean? This book is so true. So that his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. How's that for a promise? You take this book, you make it your meditation, you follow its ways. Not only will he bless your life by keeping you from this ugly and sinful pride. But he will bless your children after you. What a blessing. What a promise. 
I mean, after you're gone, He will bless your children after you. You obey this word, He will bless your children after you. You do something for people again and again in this way. Where, where, where you, you keep yourself from pride and you come in some attitude of service because you're not above your countrymen. He will bless your children after you. You know, when my, my children have traveled overseas, my, my wife and I always just remind the Lord. We say, Lord, remember the internationals that we blessed in our home and remember our children as they travel. And again and again, these doors open before them. They meet these people. They go these places. And God just blesses them. Because when you do these things, there is blessing. There is return. What can you do that will give your child a blessed life after you? Oh, well, I'll leave them a lot of money. Well, that's a good way to screw them up. really is. You want to see some entitled folks? Look at a lot of people in this city who have been left a lot of money because of oil money. They never work for anything. Because they know that pot of money is just sitting there. They've never learned how to work because of this entitlement. So just leaving them a lot of money does nothing. It corrupts them. Leave them this treasure of the Word of God, of your meditation and obedience on the Word of God, will bless your children. It will bless your home. And as I said to this student, and I said, you do this, you meditate on this book, your marriage will be blessed. If you don't, it won't. She started crying. She's just about to get engaged. But that's what the Scriptures say. It was very clear for the kings. God had always intended for there to be a kingship. It was just that the people were crying out for a king too early. So the kingship was to have sound moral authority. It was always to have sound moral authority. And this is what he's prescribing here. The majority of the book of Psalms were written during the period of 1st and 2nd Samuel. So during this period, this time period, during the, the, the reign of Saul and the reign of David, that time period of 1st and 2nd Samuel, the majority of the book of Psalms were, 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 uh, were written. Samuel was, was a judge, meaning that he led them in battle. He was a prophet, meaning that he got direct revelation from God. And he was a priest, meaning that he, he did the sacrifices and he anointed kings. He anointed two kings. He anointed Saul and he anointed David. Uh, he lived... He, lived, he, was, he was born in, in Ramah, as we'll see. He lived in Shiloh until the Philistines destroyed Shiloh. Uh, then then uh, um, the, the ark moved to Nod, and it was there until, until uh, uh, they killed the priests. And then later on, it moved to Jerusalem after that. Um, there was sacrificing in the high places still. There was, no, there was no directive against that. So, in other words, when the... The tabernacle, when the tabernacle was in Shiloh, there were still high places, we'll read about, where sacrifices were made. And that was permitted until the ark took up permanence in Jerusalem. And then God said, do away with the, the, uh, do away with the high places. So, that, 
that's the summary of the introduction of the, to the book of 1 Samuel. And then next week we'll pick up going through it at chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. And Lord, I pray that we would learn from what You have called the kings to do. Because there are multiple Scriptures that call us to the same thing. That He was to take a copy of the book and He was to meditate on it. He was to make it part of His life so He wouldn't stray from the left or from the right. That it would give Him the fear of God And it would keep him from lifting up himself above his countrymen. And it would bless his children after him. Father, I pray that we would not lose this opportunity. I pray for these young people that in this young place in their lives, that they would make the decision to read this book every day so that they would be careful to not stray from it. So that they could be blessed. Father, so that they could keep from sinful pride keep from straying your way so that they could see your hand of blessing upon them, upon their families, and upon their children. Father, bless them, I pray. Lord, may they walk according to your word. In the name of Jesus. Amen.